0: Angela Duckworth and Daniel Goleman are the two most recognized names associated with grit and emotional intelligence. While I admire and respect their writing, would you rather read about grit or to see it displayed through another person's story? I've known a Captain Charlie Plum's story for more than 20 years. He was a Top Gun pilot shot down during the Vietnam War on his 75th mission With less than one week before going home. He did go home, but after six years of deprivation, isolation, and torture in a POW prison camp. What a tremendous honor it is to have Captain Charlie Plum to share his story here on CFO Bookshelf. The name of his book is I'm No Hero. And while he says he's not, Captain Charlie Plum is a hero to me and my family. And I have the greatest respect for his life's work. I started my conversation with Captain Plum by telling him I had read the book Unbroken a few years ago. And I still cannot relate to the brutality that any POW endured from their captors. Incomprehensible is a word that keeps coming to mind and I wanted to know if that, that word keeps coming to mind to him, even today, after all these years, after being a free
1: man. I really do, Mark. Uh, that's very perceptive of you to to think of that, because sometimes, uh, of course, I tell my story frequently, and I write about my story. But when I actually try to relive the story, it's pretty incomprehensible. <laughs> and incidentally, uh, I knew uh, Louis Zamperini before he died. In fact, um He uh, he he called me uh, one time when he was getting uh, ill and said, can you do some of my speeches for me? Because we have obviously some of the same philosophies of life. And uh, and his story of Unbroken uh, makes my story look like a birthday party. (laughs) But but uh, in in any case, so I said, well, Louis, I'd be happy to, you know, but I want to know more about you. Can we have uh, can we have dinner? And we had dinner down in Santa Monica. And one of the, this guy, of course, he's in his, uh, what, late early 80s, early 90s. He says, you know, Charlie, those folks in World War II, they thought I was dead. I said, yeah, Lou." He said, now they're dead. <laughs> he, he just had that kind of sense of humor. But what a great guy he was.
0: I almost emailed this to you this morning. But I thought, no, I'll, I'll wait till our conversation. Earlier this morning, I replayed a segment from one of your speeches, but it's on YouTube and it's, it's on the, uh, the parachute story. And did you know, after all these years, I bet I've, I've replayed that probably over a hundred times. Did you know your parachute story? I still get goosebumps when I listen to it for the people who are not familiar with the parachute story, meeting the individual in a Kansas city restaurant. Could you just, recant that story
1: again. Sure. Several years after I came home from Vietnam, uh, I was in a restaurant in Kansas City where I used to live. About two tables over, a guy kept looking at me and I caught his glance, but I didn't recognize him at all. Um, It was kind of uncomfortable because he kept looking at me and he finally walked over to our table, pointed at me, and he said, you're Captain Plum. I said, yes, sir. You're that guy You flew jet fighters off the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shot down. You parachuted in enemy hands. You were tortured, and you spent nearly six years as a prisoner of war. I said, how in the world did you know all that? He said, because I packed your parachute. Well, I was dumbfounded. Best I could do was stagger to my feet and reach out a very grateful hand of thanks. He seemed to come up with just the proper words for the time, and he said, shook my hands and said, I guess it works. (laughs) So so I said, yes, sir, indeed it did. And I I must tell you, I've said a lot of prayers of thanks for your nimble fingers, but I had no idea I'd ever have the opportunity of expressing my gratitude in person. He said, were all the panels there? I said, well, I'll never forget uh, looking up at that canopy and counting the panels 15 of 18 were good. Three were torn, but it wasn't your fault. It was mine. I ejected from that F-4 Phantom jet at 600 knots close to the ground. I was well outside the envelope of that parachute. You did your job. I didn't do mine. I said, but let me ask you a question. Do you do you keep track of all the parachutes you pack? Do you know of all the lives you've saved? The guy said, no. Now, now this is the most important part of the conversation tonight. He said, no. I don't keep track of all the parachutes I pack it's enough gratification for me just to know that I've served mm-hmm. doing my duty I'm doing my duty yep speaking and of. So oh, I use that I use that as an as a metaphor mark in, in a lot of my presentations how how people pack our parachutes and we we don't we don't recognize them we don't thank them for them we don't even realize it until you know someday our parachute has to open and we suddenly have those nuggets of wisdom that a coach taught us long ago or mom or dad or preacher or teacher that told us about. And suddenly those are the parachutes that allow us uh, survival and a safe descent. Speaking of parachutes
0: and panels, I had a new epiphany and I feel free to push back. Um, I know you are a man of faith. I know you believe in divine providence. And for years, I thought, okay, this happened. It happened. And and uh, Captain Plum had the faith to get through this. He had other people, support system. But I don't know why, for the first time I thought this, it's, it's taken me 20 years to think this, is it possible this happened so that you could be a parachute or a panel of a parachute for the other men that you're going to be around for the next six years once you're captured. Has that ever gone through your mind, sir?
1: It certainly has, Uh, you know, many, many times. Of course, obviously, anytime you go through an adverse situation, you wonder why, and you replay it a thousand times. I replayed... uh, that missile coming towards me and could have turned left instead of right. And all of these things. And, uh, my, my mother was a saint. She was a mother Teresa kind of a person. And, and, and she would say that there's a reason for everything that happens to you in life. And, um, and in a way, I, I I feel like it was a, a certainly somewhat of a calling for me to have been shot down and, and survived and even thrived through that experience to give me a story to tell. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I've, I've told that story over 5,000 times in the last 49 years, uh, to audiences all over the world. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a spiritual reward for me just to have the voice that can touch the hearts and, uh, and, and lives of people.
0: Yes. And you've touched mine. Over and over and over well, again. You. I have a, before we get into some of the key ideas in, in our conversation, I, I, I want to be selfish and ask you a personal question. It's a curiosity question. Do anyone, want to, do anyone want to come close to comparing my situation with yours a few years ago? About three years ago, I was in a very bizarre auto accident. Very bizarre. In fact, when I explained it to people, until I show them the picture, it's like, they don't believe me. But I'm driving my F-150 about 65 miles per hour. There's a 350, F-350 coming the other way. He's carrying another vehicle. And in about in about three seconds time, I see this tire jack. And by the way, I looked it up. I looked it up on Amazon. They weigh 108 pounds and some odd ounces. It, it, it came off and bounced on the highway. Now, I played enough baseball to know what's going to (laughs) happen. I I figured out that in about three seconds, I'm going to meet the tire jack and my maker. So I couldn't get off on the shoulder because it's too far deep. I probably would have rolled it, and it's like, this this is going to happen. So it did, it bounced as I thought, it scraped my hood and crashed into the window at about 60 miles an hour but it didn't go through now here's here's the question i have for you when that happened it that happened about three seconds time but time stood still it was the most bizarre it was like everything was in slow motion when you got hit when you got hit in that jet speed of sound and then now you're going down. You got to make some split decisions. I got to go down my parachute.
1: Did time slow down for you? Not that I remember. Um, and everything happened so so quickly. And and uh, that, you know, in trying to go back through it in my mind, uh, it was hard for me to imagine the things that I did in such a short amount of time of course the, you know, my training, I'd been trained for two years, uh, to do this. And so, and I'd always worried, well, I really know, uh, when to get out of the airplane or because you know, as a pilot, you always want to save the aircraft. And, uh, and, and, and with the ego of most of us, <laughs> we, you know, we think that, that, that we can do about anything. Um, would I really know? And, When I looked back on it, I knew immediately that I had to get out of that airplane. uh, And and so I started the ejection process. Now, once I was in the prison camp for nearly six years, coming out of the camp, time was really fast. Um, The first hospital I was in at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines had a digital clock. And uh, so I laid down on the hospital bed and I looked at the clock and the Clock was flipping over. that was flipping minutes over like they were seconds, and uh, somebody is trying to trick me. And you know, I went over and pound on the clock. And, and and but what what was happening was that part of the survival, I think, in my prison experience, was to slow down time in in my own uh, in sidereal clock or whatever it is in, in my mind, and uh and, and to come out of that, then suddenly time sped up. Very very rapidly, but for the moments I was shot down. Well, first of all, I think as as, as soon as I pulled that ejection handle, um, I, I was in some kind of shock. You know, I, I didn't think that the enemy had a gun big enough to shoot down Charlie Plum. I was just that <laughs> that egotistical, I guess, or or self confident. <clears throat> but um, as soon as I pulled that ejection handle, uh, I think I was. It, it, I was just on, on some kind of an autopilot. Um, and so things just kept happening.
0: The name Top Gun, if, if you ask a bunch of people Top Gun, they're going to say, oh, movie or, uh, Tom Cruise. Well, you were one of the original Top Gun pilots, right? And then there's a Top Gun school. So you're one of the first, one of the first instructors.
1: Is that correct? I actually flew the first adversarial flights. So I was the I was the bad guy. Uh, if you remember um, the movie Tom Skerritt played the um, the the I think they call him Viper was his name. Anyway, he was he was the enemy and he flew against uh, the guys who were in training. Well that's that was my job. I was flying a little F9F cougar uh, which simulated MiG-15s and MiG-17s. And uh, and so I would uh, the whole thing was sort of accidental because I showed up at Miramar Naval Air Station to fly the F-4 Phantom. But there was a waiting list of about six months. And so itching to fly. My buddy and I went down to flight line and found these little cougars and uh, and used them just for for instrument training. But at the end of the hop, we would we would keep a couple thousand pounds of, of jet fuel and attack the F fours and um, and dogfight with the F fours, which was highly illegal. We weren't supposed to be doing that, but the F fours were not trained to dogfight. They were high altitude supersonic interceptors, and they were they were not supposed to uh, be down in the weeds. Um, and so, but we were we were just really getting uh, our lunch handed to us in Vietnam at that time. The kill ratio was terrible because we couldn't turn with these little pesky MiGs. And so I flew some of the first adversarial flights in that school.
0: You were flying. So flash forward to the Vietnam War, 74 flights, missions. Now we're on number 75. And I believe you had either four or five days you'd be getting out. And I've even heard you say this in one of your speeches. That day you had a bad day, and that's the day you got shot down, and then you'd end up spending the next six years in an eight-by-eight eight cell. What was it like to go from freedom? Now, this this I, this, this has to be the short version because this, this could be a two-hour answer, but, <laughs> again, top gun pilot, a man of courage. <laughs> uh competence creativity and then all of a sudden you're in for the next 6 years
1: that it was it was in fact a, a a brutal transition in my life because 5 days from the end of my tour of duty 5 days from going home to my my wife my high school sweetheart and um getting back into the swim of things of the United States and I was ready to go home. Um, You know, I I was proud to do what I did, but I was also, um, we were working pretty hard out there. So um, the the transition, the 92nd transition, I think of as from king of the skies to scum of the earth, because I really was, I was flying the hottest airplane in the world at the time, I was 24 years old. I mean, talk about, top of the game. You know, I, I really had it all going, uh, positively for me. And, and suddenly I was, uh, at the beck and call of, of these, the, the guards who would kick me around and, and, uh, torture me. And, uh, it, it was, it was, it was a, a major transition in my life, not unlike, um, major transitions that, that everybody had, you, you know, you lose a job or your company goes under or, or you go through a divorce, and, and I maintain that you can be in just as much of a, of a prison. I was in an eight-foot-by-eight-foot, and you can be in an eight-inch prison between your ears when you go through a challenge like that by, first of all, not understanding that there is an advantage to every challenge in life. My, one of my mantras is adversity is a horrible thing to waste. And if you, um, you know, if, if you accept the challenge and figure, yes, there is an opportunity here and then make it a make it a, a, almost a, a test, uh, a puzzle. Uh, can I solve this puzzle? Can I really find out is there really um, some kind of, of a, a major opportunity w- within this uh, downsizing, within this rift my company is going through, you know, within this uh, the divorce that I'm facing and and if you can really believe that and then figure it out, then you can come out as we did uh, the prisoners of war. you'd come out better than had we not been there
0: before I press record, I explained a little bit about our audience. I would say that eighty to ninety percent of our listeners have read the book, good to great, and Jim Collins, the author, was thrilled to Be able to sit down, and this is before he passed away. I think in 2005, he got to meet with Admiral Stockdale. It's my understanding that, I mean, you were with him. Uh, can I ask you, what was he like uh, during that time period? Was he a, a, a source of strength and uh, inspiration?
1: I don't think it'd be alive today if it had been for Jim Stockdale. He was, in fact, um, a source of strength, inspiration, uh, motivation, uh, commitment. He he, 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 was a philosopher and, uh, and he, he, he wrote these little, uh, these little essays on pieces of toilet paper and ink made from ashes or brick dust. And he would pass these essays along to the rest of us. And they were all about this, about this Greek, uh, philosopher Epictetus that I'd never heard of. And, uh, but he felt close to Epitetus uh, and felt that we should know about him, and, and we did. But what the, the the game changer that was James Bond Stockdale was um what was his leadership in adversity. From the very beginning, from the first I ever heard of this guy, of course, he was our senior guy, and so he would pass down edicts. Is tapping on walls or tugging on wires in our secret code or writing notes on pieces of toilet paper. And his first thing was, There is no whining in the POW camp. <laughs> Said, We are not on the defensive. We are warriors. We will pursue this war till our last dying breath. So pull up your big boy pants, boys. We got a war to fight. <laughs> so now, if you can imagine, okay, a 24-year-old guy just been shot down and tortured, you know, surviving on rice and bugs and and uh, and going to the bathroom and a, a rusted-out two-gallon bucket <clears throat> in the corner of my eight-foot-by-eight-foot prison cell. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not on the defensive. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Stockdale. <laughs> so, uh, but it, it was true. And. And, and the truth, the truth is, um, we we did, we survived and, and thrived, and even came out out better physically and mentally. It's been documented now that we've been, they come out physically and mentally better off than had we not been shot down. Well, when Jim Collins wrote the book and I read the book, and and uh, his 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 point in his interview with Stockdale was that. The optimists were the ones who died in the prison camp. And uh, I, I I read that and I thought, well, wait a minute. I was an optimist. I didn't die. I felt that, that Stockdale and most of us had to be optimistic because to be pessimistic was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you thought you were going to die, you probably were going to die. And, uh, I, and so I challenged um, Collins. I, 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 I was really surprised. I found his phone number and I called him up. He was living in Denver at the time. And, uh, I said, you know, I have to disagree with your, your point about Stockton. I know him pretty well. I was his, uh, communications officer in the prison camp. And I, 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 I don't think that's right. He said, no, nah, I, that was the interview. And I told him, well, um, the animal was still alive and, and, uh, and, and I, went to visit with him in in San Diego and I said what did you mean by that he said well he said I had to explain this a little further he said I guess he said I should have been meant that the overly optimistic he said we you can be optimistic and not be realistic with your optimism and you can absolutely th- positively think your way into uh, Into in, in death, you know. You can positively think your way if you're not realistic. He said. So, what I really meant, and and what Collins was was saying about the prisoners of war is that the guys who died were the guys who were too too optimistic uh, about their and and not realistic. He said. And and I remember from in the prison camp, he would pass along. Uh, this to us, he would say, hey, guys, we're, you know, we're in trouble. This hurts. Okay. Um, We don't have uh, a lot of weapons to, to fight our battle here. He said, but, you know, we have to know that even though this hurts, we will survive and we will go home with honor. Uh, And so he said, every decision you make has to be uh, viewed through that lens of go home with honor. And that was our motto, um, the return with honor. In fact, uh, I helped, um, I helped um, I put a, a, a brand new destroyer um, in commission a couple of years ago, the James Bond Stockdale destroyer. And right on the bow of the destroyer uh, are the words of the destroyer and the words of our motto, return with honor.
0: In a, in a recent podcast, or it's actually been a few years ago, you mentioned the book, uh, Lessons from." Hanoi Hilton, that that book, and you brought out a statistic. And I've been, and by the way, I've listened to several of your interviews as of late. And this one, I was just shocked. The the survey, and I think it comes from the book, men who came back from the Vietnam War, 30%, a little over 30% diagnosed with some form of PTSD. So that's a big number, about a third. So then you say what the number is for the 571 or 591 who come back, who had been in prison. And I'm thinking, oh, that's going, to be, that's going to be a big number. That's going to be 50%, 60%, 4%. Could you go back to what you said earlier? Why is that? Why only 4%? We'll be right back. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration.
1: Well, and not only that, but the 4% of the prisoners of war who did come back with PTSD were the guys who shot down near the end of the war. And we're not tortured, and we're only there for a few weeks or a month or two. And so, my, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but the, the folks that know a lot more about this than I do uh, believe that it took time and pain to really learn the lessons of adversity. That if that if you weren't there long enough to process the, you know, the value of the pain. Now, and, and it's, it's right, I think it's exactly at least what, uh, what the book, um, Lessons from the Hilton says. And this is from a study that was done in Pensacola, Florida. We go down for an annual physical exam, uh, and, um, and they set up a control group against us, the the XPOWs, And so they have twice as many problems, mental and physical, with the control group as they do with uh, the guys who were there for six or seven or eight and a half years, uh, and, and it, it is amazing. It, it surprises everybody when I tell them that, and uh, it, you know they ask me they ask me why. Well, <clears throat> and that feeds right in some you know my my theme that adversity is a horrible thing to waste. That the guys who were shot down near the end of the war or the average combatant didn't recognize that there was actually some value in the experience. And so they didn't pursue that, whereas we had we had plenty of time to think about this and uh, and, you know, consider it and analyze it. But we came back from 591 men. We produced 17 generals and seven admirals in the military. Most of us, uh, as I graduated, uh, uh, retired, as senior grade military officer, retired as a, an 6 Navy captain. Uh, we have doctors and lawyers and preachers and teachers and bishops and judges, two ambassadors, two senators, uh, a bunch of congressmen united States, uh, we, we have uh, a vice presidential candidate, a presidential candidate, my old flight instructor John mccain and, um, and and no group as far as I know this size in history has ever done this uh, has you know gone through an experience like we went through and come out and done the great things we've done.
0: It's, again, that's that's mind-blowing. One of the questions I was looking forward to asking you, the, the name that is the most synonymous with the word grit, it's got to be Angela Duckworth. And her her short definition, if we were talking to her, she'd give us a longer definition, but even right on her website, she says uh, grit is passion and perseverance for long-term goals. The question I have for you, sir, is is that definition overly simplistic or, or is it incomplete? Do you have a better definition?
1: No, I think that's really a great definition, passion and perseverance uh, for long-term goals because grit, you know, I don't think you can really define grit as a, as a, as a short term solution to anything. It's almost just an attitude. It's a, it's a feeling that's, you know, it's a, Part of your personal character is grit. Um, and, you know, b- before I was shot down, I I didn't really think that. I mean, I had a bunch of <laughs> a braggadocio and uh, bravado, you know, on fighter pilot. But I didn't see that as grit. And I don't think you really can measure grit until you get into, into a challenge, a challenging time. Uh, and then even then you sort of make it up as you go because i don't I, I don't think that i learned grit from a book you know or or even from um even from any of the education that i had. they don't you know of course i went to the naval academy and so they you know they roughed me up a little bit there but um uh, but no i think uh, you know i think passion and uh, perseverance is a pretty good way to describe to describe grit. Because of time, I want to consolidate
0: a couple of questions. John Doerr is one of the most recognized venture capitalists globally, and he interviewed Reed Hastings, Reed, uh, one of the co-founders of Netflix. Mm -hmm. And one thing that John Doerr does a lot, whether he's speaking himself or interviewing other people, he likes to get questions, and that will become his, his, that's how, how he'll do his speech. Or in this case, Uh, He took other people's questions to to ask Reed. In this interview, most of the audience members were CEOs. A lot of the questions were not about competition, not about product innovation, uh, not about frustrations in the office. Most of the questions were about culture, and that got me to thinking about culture. When I think of culture, I think of faith, the word faith, and maybe not in a spiritual sense, but faith in myself that I can get the job done faith in other people that I can get work done with other people. And then finally, the third one is faith in the system or the business or the leadership. The question I have for you is, does that type of culture, was that the type of culture that you experienced
1: there when you were imprisoned? I think that's an excellent, um, definition of, of what I went through in the prison camp. Uh, what Stockdale did was he put together a culture and it was a culture of, of grit, of survival, of, uh, of persistence. And it was all built around our obligation to our country, uh, to the flag and, uh, you know, that we were patriots uh, to the system. Uh, And, and so um, that, you know, that, support group that we had was just vital in we we communicated with this really rudimentary uh, kind of crazy tap code that was very difficult to learn and, and difficult to use as a matter of fact but it brought us together in this culture that Stockdale had pretty much designed and it gave us the confidence in ourselves and confidence in each other, and confidence in the system. You know, the fact that there was a purpose here, and um, and we were part of the purpose, a very important part of the purpose. We were a link in the chain, and um, and, and if we were going to be weak, the whole chain was going to be weak. So, um, so, yeah, no, I I I think that that very much was spelled out in the in the crucibles of the of the prison camp. I just
0: have two more questions. Can can I can I sneak them sure. in, sir? One uh, in chapter five, it, it's it's I, I love the way this this book is written. So there's there's this list of rules that you encounter, and then all of a sudden, and I had to write this down. It's like just out of nowhere, uh, right after you list these rules uh, that you were given by your captors, then you say, "I designed a deck of cards." the size of postage stamps on bits of toilet paper, which I'm trying to envision, how did that work? How do you shuffle those? And and then late at night, with my back to the door, I played solitaire or laid out bridge hands and studied them. I'm thinking, this is ingenious. <laughs> uh, and I'm reminded that no matter what harsh conditions you can be in, you can be creative. Just what a brilliant idea that that that. And I hope they. I hope
1: those cards didn't get wet. <laughs> well, you didn't lick your fingers muy, very much when you shuffled them. But um, you know, I think my next book is going to be on creativity because it's. It, it really was amazing how when you have no other inputs coming into your head, think of all the inputs we have on a daily basis with sights and sounds and colors and people and TV and uh, all the stuff. Well, it, it, you pair that down to like 11 things a day it might be, might be from be external, it might be a bird that you hear singing or a plane that flies over. But other than that, there's no books to read there's a no window to look out. There's no. So uh, when you have nothing else to do, you get really, really creative. And, and one of the, one of the things that, you know, I was an engineer by education and it was kind of crazy that when you get into a situation, you don't have any way to measure things. We didn't know what was a, a minute, you know, or an inch or a pound, uh, or a degree. Uh, and so I created what I call the, uh, POW Bureau of Weights and Measures. And, uh, I didn't care what the rest of the world thought of. I was going to establish what was an inch, what was a, um, uh, what was a pound? What was the degree of of heat? And um, and I I posed this to some of my engineering friends. How would you make a thermometer, you know, in a prison camp? Well, the way I did it was uh, there was a a light bulb hanging on a, a, a twisted pair of wires uh, it was a very high ceiling in this uh, cell, and so it was probably probably 10 or 12 feet of wire, and it was twisted. And so I, I threw a little clod of dirt up to the light bulb, uh, and um, it stuck to the light bulb. And it, so, so it, 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 uh, it, it shined, a, um, shined the, the shadow of this piece of dirt onto my concrete floor and so as temperatures got warmer this wet this uh, this twisted pair would unwind and it's got colder the twisted pair would wind back up turning the bulb and uh, and so turning this the, the little um shadow on my floor and so i marked off what i thought you know was uh was freezing and 50 and 75 and 100 degrees on my floor. So I had uh, my POW Bureau of Weights and Measures thermometer. I
0: would also ask you when you write that book, please include a chapter about the autobiography of the mind, because I've heard you talk about that. And just an interesting uh, concept. Last question. And by the way, I know the answer to this question, because it's in the third the last paragraph of this beautiful book. I'm no hero. So you say I'm not a hero. Well, if you're not a hero, who is?
1: Well, I, I do a lot of work with disabled veterans and these, a lot of these guys are my heroes because I came back, you know, with arms and legs and, 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 the mind and a positive attitude. And so many of these poor guys uh, when they can step away from their wheelchair, you know, when they can, um, can remarry and have kids, though, they're paraplegics. Uh, the, these, these are the heroes of the world, the folks that, uh, and, and I think we see it with our first responders as well, you know, running into the burning buildings when everybody else is running out. Um, these are the guys and gals that I see as my heroes.
0: Is it okay if I call you?
1: A hero, <laughs> I am. I'm flattered and thank you very much. And yes, it's fine, but I don't think of myself as a hero.
0: Well, I have my, my entire family and myself, we have the, just the deepest, deepest affection for you. And I appreciate the message you've shared over the past, you said about 40 years you've been sharing this story. And as I told you at the very beginning, I still get goosebumps hearing parts of this story. And even when I listened to you on this one podcast that you suggested three hours long, it's like, no, don't stop. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> so again, I, I just appreciate you so much. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. I, I appreciate you as well, Mark. Thanks a lot for, for helping me tell my story.
0: You are listening to CFO bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. I like providing my guests with an interview arc so they won't feel blindsided with any of my questions. And I did that with Captain Plum. So, not on the arc was a question that I presented him in email. I was curious if he knew the fighter pilot and trainer, John Boyd. Now, a couple of years ago, we did interview Boyd's biographer. And we talked about his contributions to the fighter pilots at the time. And I was very appreciative of Captain
1: Plum's response. Chuck Boyd was Air Force. But but you're right. You know, in the beginning, uh, nobody really understood because he was a bright guy. He was so out of sight. You know, he was over the heads of most all of us. Uh, But we but yes, we studied OODA loop. And that was one of the foundations of the the Top Gun School. When we started Top Gun was the fact that We had an airplane which was not built for the kind of war that we were fighting. Uh, the F-4 Phantom was in high altitude, supersonic interceptor. Uh, our job was to launch from the aircraft carriers and <clears throat> fly to 50 or 60 or 70,000 feet, shoot down the Russians bears, make a, a slow turn and come back to the carrier. And in fact, we were not even called fighter pilots. We were called interceptor pilots because it was supposed to be the, the big cold war deal. And, um, So we got into these dogfights with the Migs and found out that we had to, uh, you know, to reread Boyd's book (laughs) because we had we had the energy. Uh, It was just that uh, the difference was fighting on a horizontal plane or a vertical plane. And um, and that was the whole idea. So we had we had the power and we had the speed, but we didn't have the turning capabilities. Uh, But if we could uh, use our energy to go high and then turn around and come back down, that was sort of the solution.
0: One of my many takeaways in listening to Captain Charlie Plum, it's a question. Do we know the men and women who are packing our parachutes? Who are they? And are we thanking them? And that begs another question. Captain Plum's parachute was supposed to have 18 panels. What does each panel represent on your parachute? By the way, if you want to learn more about Captain Charlie Plum, his website is charlieplum.com. Charlie, that's with an I-E, Plum, don't forget the B as in boy at the end, charlieplum.com. And if you click on the link store on his website, you'll find his book, I'm No Hero. He will autograph the book you purchased there. I just bought six myself for friends, and I cannot wait to hand it to them in person. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy, and thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf.